It is a delight to visit and to have the opportunity to catch up and spend time together. I'm uh, particularly grateful for the invitation to come and share the word with you. There's something about worship that draws our heart into his presence. And there's something about the word that forms our heart to be more like him. And so it's in that uh, this morning that we come, and I want to welcome you and uh, talk to you for a few moments about this whole idea that God has not called us to be well-adjusted sinners. He's called us to be holy. Somewhere along the line, it's easy for us to begin to think that maybe our whole life is, is to be somehow a life of struggle, a life of of just getting by, but I'm coming to discover in my own journey that to the extent that I give myself to Him and commit my ways to Him and trust in Him with all of my heart, He directs my paths and what He does for me, He longs to do for you. So we're invited into this holy life and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that this morning and, and thinking about that because I believe that holy living has somehow faded from our imagination. Somehow in our minds we begin to think that that's something for super saints, it's something for people that, that really have it all together, and that one day, maybe, just maybe, but probably not, but hopefully so, but maybe not, maybe we could live a holy life. And it makes me wonder about this whole idea, and I'm taken to two individuals that perhaps you may have never met before. The first is Christian Smith, and then there is another lady by the name of Melinda Lundquist Denton. And these two individuals you may have never heard. They're authors, they're professors, and they recently wrote a book, and the title of the book was, is very fascinating. The title of the book is Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. You would, you would look at that book and you would say, but maybe Dr. Bowser doesn't realize this is not a youth group. Maybe he hasn't looked at us. I've seen you. Most of you are just grown-up teenagers, is what you are. And uh, so this book has really a lot of relevance. In this book, these two authors trace out for us what it means to live a holy life, but they do it in a very, very unusual way. They're both sociologists, and so they look at humans, and they begin to try to make decisions based on, on uh, what they see, what they observe, and how they look at, at young people. And in this particular book, uh, they, they tell us that, that for the most part, for the most part, people see God as, an, as a, the person that answers the adult helpline. Uh, they see God as a spiritual ambulance. They see God as some kind of cosmic bellhop. They ring the bell. God comes running and says, what can I do for you? And in this particular book, they introduce a concept that's uh, very, very interesting, and you, this might be really heady for some of us this morning, but they talk about what's known as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now you're saying, if I wanted to come to a college class, I would have come to a college class, but I, I came to worship this morning. But you know what this is, you may not have ever heard it called this, but here's what it really sounds like. They said, as they studied young people, they discovered something very interesting, that not only is in the lives of teenagers, but it is in the lives of young adults, adults, and senior adults. It is something that has imperceptibly 
crept into the life of the church and, and the life of our communities, and they call it moralistic, therapeutic deism. If you were just to boil it all down, here is what it sounds like. There are many people that would practice moralistic, therapeutic deism, and they would say this, I believe there is a God who created the world, who exists, and watches over humans. They would all say, also say, we believe in a God who wants us to be nice and good and fair to each other, and we would like for that God to help us to do that, but we're sure He's busy doing other things, and so... We're kind of on our own on this matter. They also talk about the central goal of life is to be happy and, and to feel good about oneself and, and to have a, a strong, healthy view of who we are and, and our self-esteem. And, and, and woe the day when somebody were to confront us and, and tell us you're doing something wrong. They also say that, that, uh, that although they believe in God, that they don't believe that, that God necessarily needs to be involved particularly in our lives except, except when we need Him to solve a problem for us. And when we have a problem that needs to be solved, we need that God. And then they say this, here's the good news according to moralistic therapeutic deism. Much like the Disney movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven, all of us are going to make it one day to heaven. Just that simple. We're, we're just going to make it because after all, we're good people. Matter of fact, we're the kind of people that God really, God really would like for us to be there with Him so that He could feel good about who He is. This is this, this, is this very seductive thing that's taking place, and it really is antithetical uh, to the Scriptures because the Scripture teaches something completely different. And where moralistic therapeutic deism says to us, look, guys, what we really need to do is be happy. Be, just enjoy life and, and be happy and, and don't worry about all the other stuff. The Bible, on the other hand, says, come to me all that are weak and weary, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Be holy because I am holy. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Moralistic therapeutic deism says, seek all these things, and when you get all these things... Then you feel good about yourself, because you feel good about yourself, God should feel good about you, and on the day that you meet him, he just looks at you and says, wow, couldn't wait for you to get here, come on in. This is something that's very seductive, and we wouldn't call it moralistic therapeutic deism, but what we would call it is living life on our terms, rather than on his. And it's powerfully seductive because it sneaks in when we least expect it. So for a moment, I'd like to consider the Word of God. It's found in Philippians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can follow me on your tablet or iPad or phone. And if not, you can just see it in the front. It begins like this, and it says this, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God. On the basis of faith, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Fascinating to me across this narrative of Scripture, there is no place where we're told to be nice. There's no place where we're told to be happy. There's no place in here where it says, define life on your terms. When you read this passage of Scripture, it says, you will define your life on His terms. And you will recognize that, that you don't already have all of this, and you haven't obtained all of this, but you press on so that you might be the person that God has called you to be. I've been going to church all my life. I, I look back on my life and I realize that, that even when I was inside of my mom, I was in church. And in, in the days when I was really young, church was so much different than it is today. And it was not in terms of difference in styles, but it was difference in the frequency with which we met. Church I grew up in, we had middle-of-the-week activities, we had Sunday morning activities, and Sunday night activities, and we had early Sunday night activities, we had activities after the Sunday evening event, and it just seemed to absorb our whole life. And I sat in church and I heard a lot of words, and could I just be honest and tell you some of the words I heard I struggled with, and I, I didn't exactly know what they meant, and I got to thinking recently, what would it look like for Maybe for me to share a few words that, that I've really struggled with to define and to think about what it means to live this holy life. And so if you'll allow me this morning, I thought maybe I would share some of these words because as, as, we, as we think about living a holy life, the greatest barrier to living a holy life is what we would call sin. The greatest barrier to living a holy life is sin. And sin can be defined in a lot of ways. We believe, as you do, that, that sin came into the world through Adam and Eve in the garden. We believe that there are really two types of sin. There would be what we would call original sin. That is the sin that we are born with. It's the sin that is a part of our nature. It is because we are related to Adam and Eve. We have original sin. It wasn't something we chose. It wasn't something that we decided we wanted. But it is that, that corruption of the inside of our lives that is a result of the fact that we are connected to Adam and Eve. It's, it's original sin. It's, it's the beginning. It's, it's really that thing inside of us that, that causes us to want to have our own way. It's the 
It's the child inside of us that throws a fit when we don't get our way, even though we may be full-grown adults. It's original sin, and we believe that. We believe that that's in every person, and it's in every individual, and it's just something we are born with. And it's a barrier to living a holy life. You say, well, why would that be? If God is calling us to, to live a holy life, why would that be a part of our lives? Could I just say to you, the reason God sent His Son into the world to die for us is that we might have eternal life and that we might have the forgiveness of sins. We believe in original sin, but we also believe there's something else, and, and that is personal sin. And all of us that are in this room this morning have personal experience with this. You may be here this morning and the enemy would say to you, everybody else is struggling with this. You're the only one, but you may think everybody else is, but it's just you. This idea of personal sin is, is something that's, that we need to talk about. And this is, this is just a voluntary decision, volitionally, to break the law of God. And sometimes it's done passively, and, and sometimes it's done actively. But it is that moment where we choose to do our own thing rather than to do God's thing. This is personal sin. It is that, it is that moment in our life where we believe that we know best and we go our own way. Personal sin is the result of the original sin that resides in us. It's important to understand that God is calling us to a holy life, and if He's calling us to a holy life, then why in, in, on, on, on the good name of the earth would we have sin in our lives? And I want you to hear me this morning very carefully. There is a difference when we talk about personal sin between those things that are involuntary and shortcomings, infirmities, faults, mistakes, failures. But it's another thing to flagrantly do our own thing. Now, there are some people that would say, well, we sin in thought, word, and deed every single day of the week. I would say to you, when you are pursuing a holy life, you begin to have a sensitivity to the things of God and you begin to sense His presence and you begin to walk with Him and as you walk with Him and as you move with Him and something comes into your life, there's a signal that goes off and says, if you keep going that direction, you're going to go off the path. Being tempted to walk off the path is not sin. Walking off the path is sin. The Apostle Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, shouldn't we keep on sinning so that the more sin we commit, the more grace we receive? The Apostle Paul says, no. We are to walk not according to our flesh, not according to our desires, but according to His. And God, in His redemptive work on the cross, made it possible for us to have forgiveness of sin. Sin both original and sin that is personal. I heard sin preached all my life and I got to thinking about it and I realized, wow, at first I had never sinned. And the more I lived and the more I 
thought about it, and the more I read the Scriptures, the more I realized the Scripture is true. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the Scripture also says that if we, are, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just, and He will forgive us our sins, and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, forgiving us of our sins. I was six years old, and I was sitting in church, and I was sitting in the back, and I was drawing on pieces of paper, and I was, I was doing everything that a six-year-old would do that didn't want to be in church. And the pastor was preaching, and I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, I heard him say something. And when he said something about sin, at six years old, I realized there were things that I had done. At the end of the service, the pastor said, if anybody would like to be saved from your sin, there's going to be an opportunity at the close of this service to pray. I closed the book and I put my paper away and something inside of me just flipped and I realized at six years old I was a sinner. You say, well, how bad could a six-year-old be? But I knew. I knew that I was a sinner. And so in those days, I came down to the front, and we had, a, we had a wooden bench across the front in the little church I grew up in, and I didn't know. I just knelt down right there, and, and the next thing I knew, my father came up beside me, and he put his arm around me, and he said, Son, why, why are you here? And I said, Dad, I'm a sinner. He said, Oh. And he said, Well, let's pray together. And so he prayed with me, six years old. You say, Well, when you became holy... No, but it was a first step in that direction. You say, you've been a saint ever since? No, there have been lots of times when that little signal popped in my head and said, you're going the wrong direction. You're going the wrong direction. And there were times when I ignored it and kept going in that direction, and pretty soon it got fainter and fainter and fainter because I was doing my own thing. And there have been moments where even though I went my own direction. It was the grace of God that was going before me. It was His grace that found me. You see, we believe in something that's called grace that goes before. It is, in theological terms, prevenient grace. It is the grace that is out ahead of us. It is the grace that goes before. You say, I don't understand that. You are here this morning because God's grace went before you and brought you here. It is God's grace that is out ahead of us and preparing the way for us. It is God's grace that speaks to us, revealing to us our sin, revealing to us His plan for salvation, giving us hope, and calling us to be like Him. It is His grace. I have a son when he was seven or eight years old, we went to a new church and I was pastoring there. It was a brand new church and it was amazing because they had all kind of new things inside the church. But one of the incredibly cool things, and this would be 25 years ago, they had switches in the bathroom that when you walked into the bathroom, the light came on. And when you stepped out, the light went off. Stepped into the bathroom, the light came on. I looked out of my office one day, and my son was standing in the hallway. And he was standing crouched right in front of the door. And he would 
push the door and jump inside. And he'd look up and the light was on. He'd back out. He'd crouch down. He'd move faster to try to get there before the light turned on. I finally watched him do it three or four times, and I came out and I said, son, what are you doing? He said, dad, I can't figure out. He said, every time, I, every time I go in there, the light's always on. But he said, I step out here and the light goes off. It hit me. That's a good picture of God's grace. It always gets there before you do. And it's preparing the way. It is God's gracious invitation to you to receive forgiveness of your sins and to begin to live a holy life. It is grace. You say, well, that's a pretty powerful word. This word is even more powerful, and this is the word repentance. It is, it is the sense in which we discover that we are we're sinners. We've committed sin, and we don't know what to do. Moralistic therapeutic deism says this, just ignore it. Just try to live a better life. Just, just decide today when you get up that you're going to do good things for people. And moralistic therapeutic deism says, you know, really, you're a pretty good person. And if you could just somehow today be a little better today than you were yesterday and a little better tomorrow and a little better the next day, you'll have this all taken care of. Scripture says... Repent. That's a word we don't like to use very much because we don't ever like to admit that we're wrong. But there comes a moment where we admit that we are sinners and we believe that Christ died for us and we confess our sins and we repent. And I love this word. If you've been in the military, you know this word. You haven't used it in this context, but the Greek behind the word repentance is, is the same as the word that's used when, when troops march and the the drill instructor or the person who is in charge says about face and all of a sudden in that moment the soldiers pivot and they go a new direction that's repentance it is actually walking in our way walking in the way we want to go and it's the grace of God that that speaks to our heart it is the grace of God that calls us and all of a sudden we realize that we are a sinner and we repent and we pivot by God's grace and go a new direction. And that takes us on the path of holiness. To be God's people. To follow where He leads. Repentance. It is to do it in about face. Moralistic therapeutic deism says you don't need to repent. You just need to, inside your mind, think about doing things better. If there's been things that you've done wrong, don't let them bother you. Just go ahead and make a fresh start. And moralistic therapeutic deism says, you just get a fresh start every day, so don't, don't worry about it. But God's grace says, there are things in your life that you need to give to me, and in giving them to me, you repent and you go a new direction. I'm convinced that there are people here this morning, people that you know, that need to repent from, from doing things their way and to begin to do things his way. Now, I want you to watch this very carefully because I don't often talk about this when I preach on Sundays, but I just think as I thought about our time together here, I thought I would talk about this for a moment. We hear a lot about, uh, about holiness and what it means to be sanctified 
And you might have even heard what it means to be entirely sanctified. That is, to give yourself completely to Him and not hold anything back for yourself, but to say yes to Him in every area of your life, even before what you know about that you might say yes to. We live in a very suspicious culture. If somebody comes to you and wants to sell you something and they make all kinds of promises, you say, could, could I see some proof? And many of us are hindered in our walk with God because we would like to know what God wants us to do and then give us a moment to think about it. And after we have thought about it and we've made a list of all the reasons we should and all the reasons we shouldn't and the, if the reasons we should outweigh those that we shouldn't, we sign up. To be entirely sanctified, to be given over to His service, to be committed to Him in everything that we do is to say yes before we even know all the things that we're saying yes to. Because we trust God's grace in our lives. When we repent and confess of our sins, we are forgiven for those personal sins we have committed. But when we say yes to Him and we allow His Holy Spirit to fill us completely, we have that original sin removed because now our intention, our desire is to follow God wherever He leads. Could I just confess for a moment when I said yes to God, I was, I was in my dorm room in college and I was laying there in my bed and God was speaking to me about, about ministry and about doing something for Him. And I remember just as clear as I'm standing here, I said, yes, God, I will do what You want me to do. Could I tell you that there have been some pretty scary things that have happened in my life that if I would have known about them, I probably would have delayed saying yes. But hear me, when I said yes, the grace of God and His Spirit filled me, which enabled me to walk in step with His Spirit and to have His power in my life. You say, have you been tempted? The same way you are. But because His Spirit lives in me, the Scripture says, greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. His scripture also says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. You say, well, I thought if I gave myself completely to God, I, I would be a super Christian. No, <laughs> you'll be a follower of Christ. You say, well, I thought if I gave myself completely to Him and His Spirit came into my life, I would just go through life and I would be like this gigantic giant just going through life and everything would fall into place. The person who has experienced the grace of God, who's had their sin forgiven, who begins the life of holiness, is a person who is completely dependent upon God. These aren't super saints. People just like you and me. People that are tempted. People that are prone to wander. But it is God's grace that's always calling us. And when we think that we've gone to a place where God is not, that's where His grace begins, right there in that moment. And He calls us to Himself. 
You say, well, what does it look like in the life of a church if, if we were to become a holy people? I would take you to Colossians chapter 3 where it says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I wish this next section wasn't in here. Bear with each other. And forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful that the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, when God's people choose to be holy as He is holy, it changes everything. It changes our homes. It changes our marriages. It changes our relationships. It changes the church. And could it be that the reason people are not drawn into the church and into the life of the kingdom because they've seen people like you and me that do our own thing, perhaps? Well... One of my favorite stories is about a young lady named Christina. She um, lived in a very poor Brazilian neighborhood. The name of the neighborhood was Merdelia. And she became discontent with living at home. She only had a pallet on the floor and she had a small wash basin in her room, a wood-burning stove, and she dreamed one day of living a better life. And... Um, one morning she ran away and she broke her mom's heart. She was only 15 years old when she ran away and she was the object of her mother's love. And her mother knew that when she ran away that life on the streets would not be easy for a young and attractive girl like Christina. So after she left, Maria, the mother, packed up everything that she had and on her way to the bus stop, she stopped at a small drugstore in her community and she had to get one last thing before she got on the bus to go look for her daughter and she took the remaining coins in her purse and she went into a small photograph booth and she sat down and she closed the booth and she began to take pictures of herself and after she got them all together she took off and she began her search and she went to places where she thought that maybe her daughter would be and she went to bars and she went to hotels and she went to nightclubs and she looked everywhere for her daughter and as she looked for her daughter she began to realize she probably wasn't going to find her and she went to places where the reputation was not good she looked in filthy bathrooms, cafes, 
Everywhere she could think of, she went to the mall. And every place she went, she would take a small picture of herself and she had written a message on the back. She would take that picture of herself and she would put it on a mirror, she would put it on a wall, she would put it in a bathroom stall, she would put it in a, a behind the bar of a restaurant, she would just post these pictures everywhere she went. And she wrote something on the back of those pictures. Wouldn't you love to know what she wrote? Must have come from a mother's heart. It wasn't too long before Maria, in search of her daughter Christine, her money ran out. Her pictures ran out, and she had to go home, but she hadn't found her daughter. And so she got on the bus to go back to her little community of Merdelia. As she was on the bus, tears were flowing down her, her face, and she realized she may never see her daughter again, and it was heartbreaking to know that she had lost her, da her daughter to the city. A few weeks later, Christina was walking down a familiar alley, a place where she had done things that she was ashamed of doing. But she was walking down that alley, and as she walked down the alley, her young face was tired, worn out, even though she'd only been in the city for less than a month. And walking down the alley, an alley she'd been down a thousand times before, she began to walk, and as she walked, and as she walked, she saw over in the distance a little piece of paper on the wall. And the closer she got to it, the more she realized that the writing on that piece of paper looked like the writing that she recognized and actually realized it was the writing of her mother. And walking slowly back down the alley, she saw a picture of her mother, and when she flipped it over, she realized that what her mother had written on that piece of paper was powerful. Her mother had written in her own handwriting, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Tears filled her eyes and she looked again and she, she adjusted it so she could actually see it more clearly and then she realized, yeah, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. You see, it was the grace of God. It was the grace of God in her life it was the picture of her mother, and it was the handwriting of her mother that drew her back. She looked again, and she read it again. Whatever you've done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And the scripture tells us that when we decide to come home, we can come home. So Christina got on the bus and went back home. I love that story because it's your story and it's mine. You may never have run away from home. You may never have run far, but you've gone far and, and you've maybe done some things you, you should never have done and you say, I cannot believe that anybody would ever want me. God wants you. <laughs> God loves you. 
God is calling you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you have faced. I have a friend. His name is Daryl. Daryl was preaching, and he made a statement that I want to leave with you this morning. It's not mine. It's his. And here's the statement. It doesn't matter how many steps you have taken away from God. It only takes one step to get back to Him. Can I just say it one more time? It it doesn't matter how many steps you take away from God. It only takes one step to get back to Him. The world says, live life on your terms. And many of you have. And you have found yourself empty. But could I encourage you today to take one step toward Him? Because He's already taken lots of steps toward you. After the service is over, on this table, there's going to be a card. It's, it's like this. It's, it's, what, it's what Maria wrote to her daughter. And it's what God is saying to you. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. God is calling you to come home. And the scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make no mistake about it. God is calling you to take a step toward Him. Father, in these moments, we pause, we acknowledge that You have called us to this very moment. You have invited us to be the recipients of your grace. And so this morning, Father, I pray for these women and men, these young adults, all of those who call this church home. For that one that's here this morning that feels like, yeah, but I've really made some I've made some bad decisions. I've made some decisions that are displeasing. I've made some choices that aren't really good choices. God, remind us that your grace is greater than all that we have done. And you are calling us to be your people. For we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. And God's people said,